uh, read this passage of Scripture together. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, down to verse 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you today once again for your word. Lord, it is living and powerful. It has the ability to uh, pierce to the very inner being of man. And Lord, we know that uh, your Holy Spirit uses your word, the sword of the Spirit, to convict and to uh, encourage, to comfort, to do the work of the Spirit in each and every heart and life. And Lord, we uh, pray that that would happen this morning, that your word would prevail as you have promised. Your word uh, does not return void, but always accomplishes what you desire for it to accomplish. And so, Lord, we pray for that this morning to happen. And, Lord, we pray that if there are those in our midst today that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to a full saving faith in Christ, that there would be repentance of sin, that there would be true saving faith. And, Lord, we pray that uh, as we worship and as we focus on your truth today, that uh, we would be in tune with you, that we would be uh, truly listening, uh, that we would heed the words of your truth. And Lord, we pray that you would use those things in our lives today to do your will. And Lord, we commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is known for its strong warning passages. We have already seen three of them. And today we come to the fourth. And since this one is widely regarded as the strongest of the four, we can rightly say that this is the strongest warning in the Bible. All of the warning passages in this book deal with the same thing. The danger of falling short of embracing the gospel and receiving eternal life through saving faith. In Jesus Christ. And in this case, the danger is the greatest kind because this warning has to do with apostasy, a knowing and intentional turning away from the truth after having been exposed to it. John MacArthur says that this chapter deals with those who had heard the gospel, had come face to face with the claims of Christ had been associated to some extent with his church, 
but were in danger of turning away. He says these were people whose hearts had been warmed toward the gospel of Christ, who had made a superficial commitment of faith to Him, and had identified themselves visibly with the true church. And yet, they were not genuinely born again. It is very clear from this passage that this is addressing the danger of apostasy, which is a turning away from the truth of the gospel without embracing it. This is the very same warning that we saw in chapter 2, the warning not to drift away from the gospel or to neglect so great a salvation. And remember, the idea there is not to drift past the harbor and completely miss it. It's the same warning we saw in chapter 3, that we should not be like the disobedient Jews in the wilderness and fall short of the promise because of unbelief. It's the same warning we saw in chapter 4, that we would not fall short of entering into God's salvation rest. And it's the same warning we saw in chapter 6, that for those who have been enlightened concerning the truth of the gospel and have experienced by close proximity all the good blessings of salvation, but then have turned away that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And I'm not going to go back to all those warning passages because we have already dealt with them. But this warning is the strongest warning of all. Because this warning lays out the judgment that will come to those who are apostates. And again, this passage, like all the warning passages, has been greatly abused throughout the history of the church. And there have been many faulty interpretations and applications of this passage. For example, there are those who have taught that it teaches you can lose your salvation. And some think that this passage, along with the other warning passages, deal with those who are in fact, genuine believers who then apostatize and turn away from the faith and therefore lose their salvation. No, the Bible is very clear. Those who are truly born again children of God can never turn away from the faith. And those who do turn away were never truly saved to begin with. The Bible's very clear on that. So whatever else we might say about this passage of Scripture, that is one thing that we must rule out because the Bible teaches strongly the perseverance of the saints. And that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is clearly communicated in Scripture. And of course, there are also some who believe that this passage is addressed to Christians but that would make the warning against apostasy meaningless. Because the only ones who could apostatize are those who have not yet been born again through spiritual regeneration. 
And since this is clearly warning against the danger of apostasy, then it must be addressed to unbelievers here. And as we have seen, they are unbelievers who, in this case, are closely associated with the church, but they are unbelievers nonetheless. And by the way, this reminds us of the sobering truth that there are always unbelievers sitting on church pews. And as was the case here, so it is still today that there are many who are closely associated with the church who are not truly born again. You see, we don't have to be we don't have to go overseas to be missionaries as Michael mentioned. Uh, we can be missionaries right here and we need to be reminded that often we have a great mission field right in our own churches. And one of our primary responsibilities is to do everything we can to make sure that everyone who attends this church is truly saved. But this is a strong warning against rejecting God's truth and the serious consequences of doing that. In the previous section, verses 19 to 25, he had appealed to his listeners to make the appropriate response to Christ's sacrifice, and now he's warning against the inappropriate response. He's not saying that any of them have already apostatized, but he's saying that some of them are in danger of that. As O'Brien puts it, he is deeply concerned that some, verse 25, are perilously close to falling over the precipice, and his intention is to pull them back from that disastrous course of action by the strongest of warnings that focuses on the certainty of divine judgment. Apostasy is the most serious of all sins because it is a deliberate and willful form of unbelief. It is not a sin of ignorance, but of rejecting known truth. And the great tragedy is that there are some who move toward Christ and come right up to the edge of saving faith, but never cross that line. And this is where the Hebrews were. They were closely associated with the church. They knew the gospel. They had seen the changed lives of the true believers in the congregation, but they themselves had never made a full commitment to Christ. And so with this as our context, let's move now into this passage of Scripture. And we're going to divide this into six parts we begin with the condition of apostasy. Look with me at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Stop right there. This is probably the clearest biblical definition of apostasy. Apostasy is receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel but willfully then remaining in sin. An apostate is one who has heard the truth 
of the gospel. In fact, he might even be able to articulate the gospel himself. For some, they may have sat under the preaching of the gospel for a long time, but they have rejected it, not necessarily in a defiant manner, but by simply failing to embrace it. But the first part of verse 26 seems to emphasize two aspects of apostasy, the knowledge of the truth and the willful rejection of it. MacArthur says every apostate is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is an apostate. Why is that? Because not every unbeliever has heard the gospel. Not every unbeliever knows the gospel. But the apostate is one who knows it. He has a knowledge of the truth. He knows more than enough to be saved. You know, there are two Greek words for knowledge in the New Testament. Uh, the word gnosis has to do with ordinary knowledge, but the word epinosis has to do with full knowledge or experiential knowledge. That is the word that's used in verse 26. In other words, what this is saying is that the ones being described here are those who have more than just a passing acquaintance with the gospel. They have a full knowledge of it. Another way to explain this is to say that the apostate has all the information. He lacks nothing at all intellectually. He may even be convinced of the truthfulness of it intellectually, but he has never committed himself to it. This is why you find most apostates in the church. They have, many of them, been attending church for a number of years. They like all the good things about the church. Or maybe they just go to church because it is culturally the thing to do. But they have never responded to the gospel with genuine saving faith. Eventually, though, they will lose interest and fall away. And they will end up going back to a life of sin. He returns to sinning willfully, it says. And for some, the process of falling away may be gradual, but eventually it will become obvious that he is an apostate. And notice the word willfully there in verse 26. In the Greek, it comes at the beginning of the sentence, which makes it emphatic. It carries with it the idea of deliberate intention. One commentator says, the reference here is not to sins of ignorance or weakness, but to those that are planned out, determined ahead of time, or done with forethought. And the verb indicates this is a habitual activity. It is a present participle here. So the idea is that of willfully continuing in sin. Of course, even genuine believers sin at times. But this is describing a lost person who has sin as an ongoing pattern of his life. And the concept here also includes a settled way of thinking 
and believing. So he is an unredeemed sinner, and sin is what characterizes his life. By the way, what happens when a genuine believer sins? Well, the Lord disciplines him. And there are even times when the chastening of the Lord is so severe that God takes the believer on home to heaven. But generally, the conviction of the Lord is so strong in a genuine believer's life that he eventually repents and is restored to fellowship with God. Now, while he is in sin, of course, he forfeits joy and peace and many other blessings. But when he repents, all of that is restored. In fact, it's sometimes difficult to tell who is an apostate and who is backslidden. But there is a great difference because one is a true child of God and the other is not. In fact, the Apostle Paul really distinguishes between apostates and disobedient fleshly Christians in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, we read, If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's describing an apostate. But verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's describing a true believer that has become faithless or has fallen short in his faithfulness to the Lord. What happens with him? The Lord remains faithful to him. He denies the apostate, but he remains faithful to a true believer. So there's a big difference between an apostate and a backslidden Christian. The general condition of the apostate is that he knows the truth, but that he has rejected it. And you could say that he sins directly against the truth. He goes on sinning willfully after coming to a knowledge of the truth. He continues on in a sinful lifestyle, even though he knows the truth of the gospel. So we move secondly to the consequences of apostasy. Look with me at verse 26 again. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews here gives us two serious consequences of apostasy. First, a forfeiture of forgiveness. Following the conditional clause, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, He says the result will be there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews has spent much time making the case that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest who has offered the only sacrifice for sin that can cleanse the conscience and permanently deal with sin. So what this is saying is, That for those who know the truth of the gospel and then reject it, they are beyond salvation. Their hope of eternal life is forfeited. There is no other sacrifice that is acceptable to God. So if they reject the sacrifice of Christ, there is nothing else that can be done for them. To reject 
the atoning work of Christ, leaves a person in their sin and ultimately will lead to eternal damnation. Apostasy means giving up eternal salvation. The apostate has repudiated the power of the cross, and there's no other power that can deal with sin. Christ has done all he can do to save them, but if they have knowledge of that truth and then turn away from it in unbelief, then there is nothing else that can be done for them. And then secondly, he says, there will be a fury of fire. Instead of having a sacrifice that atones for sin, what can the apostate expect? Look at verse 27. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Since there is no further sacrifice that can take away their sin, they will be judged for it in full. And all that remains for them is this terrifying expectation of the wrath and the fury of God. The adjective terrifying there in the New American Standard refers to something or someone that causes great fear. It is much more than just a feeling. It points to a real event that is to come. This is a graphic picture of the judgment of God. This, of course, includes eternal torment in hell. And God sees the one who knows the truth of the gospel and turns away from it as an enemy. The greater the sin, the greater the judgment. And apostasy is the greatest sin of all. Therefore, it incurs the greatest judgment. Apostasy is a sin against the grace of God, and therefore, it is the greatest of all sins. I mean, just listen to how Paul put it in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and following. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And by the way, there are people who have the idea that the Old Testament is where it describes a wrathful and vengeful God, whereas the New Testament shows one of love and compassion. The truth of the matter is that the New Testament is much more graphic in its description of the wrath and judgment of God than the Old Testament is. Of course, both Testaments describe both the mercy of God and His wrath, but it is the New Testament that provides the most vivid pictures of hell. MacArthur says, It is true that we have a more complete and beautiful picture of God's grace and love in the New Testament, but we also have a more complete and terrifying picture of His wrath. And I could go to a number of passages this morning if we had time to show you that. Another, by the way, if you think that no one should ever be motivated by fear, then you don't know much about the Bible. 
Because fear is often used in Scripture to motivate sinners to repentance and saving faith. Now, it might not be the highest of motivations in our minds, but it is an important one nonetheless. But what we have to understand from this passage of Scripture is that the author of Hebrews is not just talking about a feeling in verse 27. He is describing a very real event that can be expected by all those who reject the gospel. Another thing to note about verse 27 is that it is an allusion to Isaiah 26, 11. In that Old Testament passage, we see the contrast between the righteous, those who walk in the ways of God and long for His presence, and the wicked, those who go on doing evil in spite of God's grace toward them. So the fire of judgment is reserved for the wicked, for those who spurn God's grace and continue on in their sin. This is the very concept of apostasy that the author of Hebrews is talking about there in Hebrews 10. So we have the condition of apostasy, the consequences of apostasy. Thirdly, we have the comparison of apostasy. Look with me at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was under the Old Covenant. Every Jew knew that there were certain offenses of the Mosaic Law that were punishable by death. And that's based on Deuteronomy 17. In certain cases, the people were instructed to take the offender out into the wilderness and stone them to death. And as some translations read, your eye shall not pity them. They were not to extend any mercy toward them, and justice was to prevail. If there were at least two witnesses to verify the person's guilt, then this was to be a punishment, and they all knew that. But the argument here is from lesser to greater Go on to verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? In other words, even the worst offender under the old covenant cannot begin to compare with the person who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and has rejected him. The greater penalty comes under the new covenant because it is the covenant of grace. And to reject that grace is the greater sin. And notice the phrase, how much severer punishment. The worst penalty under the old covenant was physical death. But the worst penalty under the new covenant is spiritual death, eternal death. And the Bible is clear that this is the penalty for anyone who knows the truth of the gospel of grace and rejects it. O'Brien says those who reject the new covenant sacrifice of the Son of God deserve a punishment even more severe than physical death. The gravity 
of such willful repudiation of the law of Moses under the Old Covenant serves to highlight how much greater seriousness apostasy is under the New Covenant. Why is the punishment so much greater under the New Covenant? Because those of us in this dispensation have the full knowledge of the gospel of grace. We have a much greater opportunity to receive the eternal salvation of God. You remember the warning of verse of chapter 2? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This great salvation has been fully revealed to us in the New Testament. We are completely without excuse. There is no reason for us to miss out on God's eternal salvation unless we have unbelieving hearts. But verse 29 also provides the essence of apostasy. So we move fourthly to the characteristics of apostasy. It is verse 29 that makes it most clear that the author of Hebrews is speaking of apostasy here. The rebellion of those who have turned away from the gospel is depicted in terms of three actions that are graphically portrayed here. This really defines the phrase that we see in verse 26, if we keep on sinning willfully. This is, in essence, what we are doing if we continue on in our sin without embracing the truth of the gospel. As O'Brien puts it, the three clauses do not refer to different groups of people since they're linked to the same definite article, nor are the expressions synonymous or ascending in gravity or seriousness. Rather, each describes different aspects of apostasy. The first one is rejecting the Son. Rejecting the Son. Verse 29 says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. To reject the truth of the gospel is to trample underfoot the very Son of God. What an awful way to treat the one and only Savior of the world. The word for trample there was used of our Lord to describe what would be done to salt that had become useless and lost its savor. It was used to describe what swine would do if you cast pearls before them. They would trample them underfoot. In other words, the apostate treats the Son of God as worthless or without value. As John MacArthur points out, it is a fearful and damning thing to count as worthless the one whom the Father has declared to be of infinite worth. To trample the Son of God underfoot denotes contempt of the most flagrant kinds. There could not be any stronger language than this. The metaphor of trampling on someone was used in both classical literature and the Greek Old Testament as an image of utter disdain. As George Guthrie writes, those who have rejected the gospel have shown the lowest form of contempt, not only to a set of teachings, 
but to the very person of God's Son. This is why apostasy is such a serious, abominable sin. But there's more to it than that. As J. Adams puts it, this is not mere sin. It is sin that involves the rejection of all that is essential to the Christian faith. You know, this book has made it very clear that Jesus Christ is the final and complete revelation of God to man. It has made it clear that He alone is the great high priest who has offered the one and only sacrifice that can remove the guilt of our sin. And we have seen that He is the divine second person of the Trinity who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father with all power and authority. So how dreadful it is for anyone to treat the Son of God in this way. He is the glorious Son of God, the one and only Savior. How can anyone treat Him with contempt? And we also need to remember that God the Father has promised to make all His enemies a footstool for His feet. And trampling underfoot the Son of God makes you an enemy of Christ. He puts, it puts the apostate under the condemnation of ultimate defeat. But there's another characteristic of apostasy, and that is repudiating the sanctification of God. Look again at verse 29. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is like someone walking through the blood of a slain son. The word unholy there can be translated common, defiled, or unclean. This means to treat the new covenant blood of Christ as no better than the most common death. It means that the perfect sacrifice of Christ which is the only way by which we can become sanctified in God's sight, is treated as if it were nothing at all. Now, one very important point of clarification is needed here. The phrase that is translated in the New American Standard as, by which he was sanctified, cannot refer to the apostate because certainly he is not sanctified. There are two possibilities here. One is that it refers to Christ. And if that is the case, then it has more to do with Christ sanctifying himself, as it says in John seventeen nineteen. And this would have the meaning of Christ being set apart by God in his atoning work. But I think there's a better solution. It can read by which one is sanctified. In other words, the apostate is not sanctified through the sacrifice of Christ because he has rejected it. But the genuine believer is sanctified by his blood. Now, that interpretation, I think, fits the context better. And another way to say this would be to say that the sanctifying blood of the covenant, the apostate has regarded as unclean. The apostate regards this atoning sacrifice as profane, despised, and worthless. Regarding the 
sanctifying blood of Christ in this manner, he is again rejecting the second person of the Trinity who shed that blood on the cross. And the priceless treasure of the blood of Christ, that which the Word of God calls precious blood, is counted as nothing by the apostate. But there's even more. A third characteristic of apostasy is that it is resisting the Spirit of God. Look again at verse 29. And has insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, what is this? The Bible refers to this as the unpardonable sin. In Luke 12, 8 and following, Jesus said, And I say to you, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Why is that? Because... It is the Spirit that bears witness of Christ before men. So to resist the divine verification of the Spirit, that Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, and thereby to reject Him, is to commit the unpardonable sin. In essence, apostates insult the Spirit of grace by doing exactly what the Pharisees did. They attributed the work of the Spirit to the devil. This is the essence of the unpardonable sin. That is exactly what apostates do. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace. He is the one who bears witness to the gospel of grace. And when we resist the Spirit's testimony concerning Christ, we are on our way to apostasy. Well, there's a whole lot more I need to say about this subject of apostasy. I think I'm going to take one more week on it. But I'll close with this. I agree with the words of the old evangelist who said, to walk out the door of this assembly unsaved is to walk over the pleadings of the Holy Spirit, the precious blood of Jesus, and the loving appeal of the Father. It is the rejection of all three persons of the Godhead. It is the most serious of all sins to ultimately turn away from the gospel of grace. And if you say no today, you may well be on that path. There cannot be a stronger warning in all the Word of God. Will you heed that warning this morning? Will you avoid the deadly path of the apostate? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would quicken the truth of your word to our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that the sword of the Spirit would pierce, pierce hard hearts, pierce through any excuse, any hindrance, anything that prevents especially that it would pierce unbelief. Lord, I pray this morning that those who may be here this morning have never yet fully committed their life to Christ. Maybe they've been part of the church for a long time. 
Maybe they've heard the gospel, know the gospel, maybe perhaps can even recite the gospel, but are not truly born again, that your Holy Spirit would reveal that to them, that they would understand and that they would come with simple repentance and true saving faith and put their full trust in Jesus Christ for salvation today. Lord, we pray that all of us would understand the seriousness of your word, that uh, there's great danger in apostasy. And so, Lord, help us to always avoid that through your grace. So, Lord, we pray now that uh, we would respond to your word as you would have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.